You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, Lord willing, we'll look at verses 25 through 29 this morning. If you don't have a physical copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you uh, to pull out the, the about four pages that have been stapled together that's got the scripture references and uh, space for notes and quotes and things you can write down to help you better retain the message. So I want to encourage you to do that. Also, uh, if you're online, you can, or here, you can, if you have a smartphone, you can download the Version Bible app. That's Y-O-U version. Uh, then if you go to the More tab and tap events, Find Mount Carmel Baptist Church and today's sermon title, uh, they are all of those same notes, quotes, and references. Uh, they're available on that app as well. So I want to encourage you uh, to search the scriptures with us. I always ask that you have an open Bible, an open mind, and an open heart. Romans chapter 2, verses 25 through 29. I want to preach a message that I've entitled, Heart Surgery. Heart surgery. Which would you prefer? A spouse who cheats on you but proudly wears your wedding ring or a companion who guards your shared intimacy with his or her life but doesn't wear a ring? The wedding ring is circular and it's meant to symbolize unending faithfulness. But can this ring actually keep you faithful to your spouse? No. Wearing a wedding ring but not fulfilling its symbol of unending faithfulness renders this ring meaningless. And in fact, it scandalizes it and marriage that it stands for. In today's Bible passage, the Apostle Paul addresses a religious symbol that can never substitute the substance of faithfulness to God. In Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul asserts that God equally condemns Jews and Gentiles, that's non-Jews. Both parties, which includes all of us here, deserve the full wrath of God in hell for eternity. Gentiles are condemned, if you remember when we went over this, for violating their conscience, which witnesses to that objective, universal, moral law of God. Jews will be shown no favors simply because they possess God's written law, the Old Testament in your Bible, Uh, Mosaic law, the law of Moses, think the Ten Commandments. However, there was one thing, a religious symbol, 
that Jews considered their ace in the hole. It was circumcision. Circumcision is a physical sign. Think of it like a wedding ring. And it signified that they were members of God's chosen people. God's covenant people. Now, pay attention to this because this is what's going on in the world behind the text. Okay? Already in the lifetime of the Apostle Paul, circumcision was regarded as a ticket to heaven. In Jewish tradition, there are pictures, okay, word pictures, of Father Abraham as sitting at the gate of hell to ensure that no circumcised person would be allowed to enter. So everybody see how Jews thought of circumcision. To be circumcised is to be exempt from hell and to go straight to heaven. To the average Jew, circumcision seems to have carried an unquestioned pledge of eternal security. Now the question becomes, how could Jews be treated the same as Gentiles? Because if you remember from Romans 2.11, God shows no favoritism. How can Jews be treated the same as Gentiles even to the point of being in danger of the wrath of God when circumcision marks them out as belonging to God. And so Paul is going to take on this task of saying, what is the significance of circumcision? And in answering that question, he's going to answer an equally important question for you and I. And that's how can you and I receive pardon from God's wrath and receive God's praise on Judgment Day. Let's look at Romans chapter 2, verses 25 through 27. And he's speaking to the Jew. He's speaking to him in the singular. He's pointing them out. Circumcision benefits you if you observe the law. And remember, that's the Mosaic law. The whole law of Moses, including the Ten Commandments. But if you are a a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Now, I know this sounds all crazy to us, but what Paul is saying is a radical idea at his time. Radical. He is literally redefining what it means to be a Jew. All right? So keep reading. He says this, A man who is physically uncircumcised, but who keeps the law, will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law written down and then the physical sign of circumcision. What a, a crazy notion. This is actually really amazing. When you think about this, here's the first thing. Here's how you will not receive pardon and not receive God's praise. Number one, it is not by a physical ritual or symbolic procedure. It is not by a physical ritual or a symbolic procedure. Circumcision admitted them, the Jews, into the membership of God's covenant people. But here's what Paul is attesting. If you admit yourself into God's covenant people, it means you now must live as a member of God's covenant people, which means you have to uphold the law. 
The Apostle Paul is saying that circumcision does not make a man a saint before God since it does not guarantee that that man will keep God's law. In fact, all that circumcision proves to the Jew is that you know the law of God because you've been circumcised and brought up under the law of God. In one way, it condemns them. They understand more about God and His work and His ways. But the sign itself, the ritual itself, cannot make you more holy or keep you more faithfully obedient to God's law. Circumcision, just think of it like this, was like a wedding ring. It cannot keep you faithful. All it can do, I want you just to think of this, all it can do is remind you of your obligation to be faithful. That's all it can do. We must keep in mind that Paul is dealing here in absolutes. Obedience is not a matter of degrees. That's what we like to do. We like to compare ourselves to one another. I'm holier than that person or I'm better than that person. I need you to understand how God referees this. In Galatians 5.3, just note the reference, Galatians 5.3. This is Paul saying, again, I testify to every man, he's preaching to every person, who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. If you admit yourself into that covenant, you've got to do everything in the covenant. That's what he's saying. James 2.10, this is the brother of Jesus, and he was considered a Jew among Jews. Listen to what he says in James chapter 2, verse 10. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. And the reason for being that is because all of the law and all of its many facets is given by one person, one God. So to break the law in one area is to ultimately offend who? God. You've become a lawbreaker, a criminal, an enemy, a rebel against God. For circumcision to be of any value, the Jew must keep the law of God. And as we'll all see, and we know this, it's impossible for us to do that. We cannot do it. And to break the law is to render circumcision null and void. That's an amazing thought that that Paul just made. Worse, Paul goes even further to demonstrate what he means. The uncircumcised Gentile who keeps that moral law, keeps his conscience clear, may be regarded as circumcised. And the circumcised who does not keep God's law, the Mosaic law, will be condemned by the uncircumcised man who does keep the moral law. Because what is God after? Your obedience. The Jew who habitually breaks the law has become for all practical purposes an uncircumcised pagan. Without obedience, the Jew has become a Gentile. That's what Paul says. Paul is simply saying to the Jews of his day, and then I believe to professing Christians today, shame on you. There are people without the Bible, people without the advantages you have, who live better lives than you. Now what does that mean? A couple of things. One, I believe this is, first of all, I need you to get you this. My apologetic side in me has to this. This is proof of the resurrection. This argument is proof that Jesus was raised from the dead. Because can I remind you about the man who's writing this statement? Listen to me. 
This is a Pharisee among Pharisees. He is the strictest Jew that you can think of. And yet here he states out of his own mouth that to not keep the law, no matter if you've been circumcised or not, something that the Jews thought was their way out means nothing before God. What could change a Pharisee's perspective that all the religious rites of Judaism means nothing before their God? And I'm telling you this, church, understand this, is because Jesus revealed himself to the Apostle Paul. Do you understand that? Only a risen Lord can change this man's theology. Do you hear? I need you to catch how big of a deal this is. Listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 3. About when he, when he met Jesus, how this changed his whole view about himself. He says, although I have reason for confidence in the flesh. He's talking about, if you want to talk about things a person can do to receive God's pardon and receive his praise. Paul's going, let me show you my religious resume. He says this, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, circumcise the eighth day. Check. Of the nation of Israel, check. Of the tribe of Benjamin, that's King Saul's, the first king of Israel, that's his tribe, check. A Hebrew born of Hebrews, I know my culture, I know the language, back of my hand, check. Regarding the law, a Pharisee, the strictest, check. Regarding zeal, persecuting the church, anybody after Judaism, he went after them, check. Regarding the righteousness that is in the law, notice what he considered himself, blameless. He was confident. And then notice what happened. Jesus kicked him off his horse one day and listen to what theology says. But everything that was gained to me I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. It means nothing. He says more than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of Him, I have suffered the loss of all things and considered them as dung, manure. Could you imagine a Jew saying circumcision is manure? Why? Because he's seen Jesus. It means nothing. So that I may gain Christ. That's what changes Paul's whole view on this. He's seen the risen Jesus. And he understands this church that the only thing that will pardon you on judgment day, the only thing that will receive God's praise is your connection to Jesus. That's it. Everything else is a loss. You've wasted your time. Tim Keller put it this way. It is possible to trust in Christianity rather than Christ. Oh, it's possible. And I believe for those here in the South, this is the most wicked temptation we face. When we emphasize secondary things more important than the one thing, Jesus. I ask this question. I'm asking every one of you now. You can answer in your heart. Do you repent of your sins and trust Jesus? That's it. Trust Jesus alone as your Savior in God. And if your reaction in your mind is something like this, of course, I was raised in a Christian home and church. You didn't hear a question. Okay? 
I have a godly heritage. I was christened as an infant. I was confirmed. I was baptized. I've taken communion or the Lord's Supper. I attend church. I subscribe to a church covenant, a statement of faith, a creed. I'm a Catholic. I'm a Lutheran. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a Methodist. I'm a Baptist. I've done my penance. I've served and volunteered for years. I'm a deacon. I'm a pastor. All these things are lost. Do you understand even on judgment day, I can't come up with the ground and confidence that Jesus, I'm your pastor. I've pastored for you. It means nothing. It will not exempt me from judgment and no rite or ritual that you can think of. Well, it will exempt you from judgment. We must count them all as loss when it comes to Christ. Think about it. You could just go in here. Whatever ritual or thing you think about that would bring you closer to God, just go and substitute it. Here's how this may help you. Take the word circumcision out and put baptism, church membership, deaconship, church covenant. Put whatever it is in there. So if you've been baptized, if you're a church member, don't you know that you're not a Christian? If you're only one externally, real Christianity is not about having confidence in external things. That's what Paul's trying to prove. Christians, our rituals, our rituals, the things that we do, they are important. But here's what you've got to understand. They're signs. They really, they remind us of God's faithfulness to us and our joyful response of faithful obedience to Him. But I need you to catch this, no matter how, how you got wet or if you drunk uh, grape juice or wine or whatever, none of them can affect obedience. You get that? They actually cannot conform you more to the image of Jesus. They are ineffective in and of themselves, left alone. None of them have the value to justify you before God. And please, what I'm begging you to do, do not prepare your defense that way for judgment day. A religious resume is not going to work. How can we receive pardon and God's praise? Let's look at verses 28 through 29. Here's the good news. You ready? I'm going to get a little happy. It says, For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly. So radical. This is a radical idea. And true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. Verse 29. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is of the heart. By the Spirit. Notice in my translation, and it's okay if it is in yours too, it's a capital S, by the Spirit. This is not by human spirit, this is the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit, not the letter, not the law. That person's praise, underline that word praise, is not from people, but from God. So how do we receive pardon? How do we receive the praise of God? Number two, it's this. It's by a real Holy Spirit heart surgery. Y'all, this is awesome. What I'm about to tell you about, like, I need you to catch this. I'm talking about God doing a miracle in your heart. That's what I'm talking about. A real Holy Spirit 
heart surgery. God longs to perform a miracle in your heart. The heart, when we talk about the heart, the heart is the center, not only of the moral, ethical, and spiritual activity, but of all the operations in your life. I need you to understand this. The heart's significant. It encompasses all your inclinations, motivations, attitudes, passions, feelings, affections, deliberations, determinations, and reactions. I like how one person said this. It's all the noise in your head. Right? It's everything you think and contemplate and what motivation gets you. All the stuff on the inside. It's your real self. It's your real self. It's your hidden, the Greek word here, cryptic self. The one no one else sees, but the one that only God sees. Who you really are. God's wanting to perform a miracle in that arena. Not in the externals, the flesh. He wants to go to your very heart and soul and do something there. Circumcision of the heart. Everybody's kind of like, yeah, sign me up. <laughs> like, what, what is this? It's a phrase that's actually used in the Old Testament. And I'll give you the references for it in a minute. And it expresses the longing of the Israelites that one day their God, okay, from the heart, all the inclinations, the motivations, attitudes, passions, feelings, affections, deliberations, determinations, and reactions, that one day God would help orient all of them toward him in obedience. That God will come and circumcise our hearts. He'll incline us to love him and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Because what we have found, y'all, what the Bible teaches, is we're disinclined. <laughs> we're prone to wonder. We bend toward hatred. That's our natural bent. Neglect and rejection of God. Being and doing the people that we don't, being and doing the things that God doesn't want us to participate in. That's where we are naturally. And God goes into our hearts to do something supernatural and where we actually begin to desire from the deepest recesses of our soul, we want to honor God. And then there's this play on words here at the end with the meaning of the name Jew. I don't know if you know what the name Jew means. This is awesome. The Jews get their name from their ancestor, Judah. You may have heard the tribe of Judah. And the word Judah in Hebrew sounds like the verb praise. And the name praise, the verb praise and the name Judah are intimately connected. Listen to Genesis 25, uh, 29, 35. It says, when Judah was named, his mother declared, this time I will praise the Lord. She called him Judah. In Genesis 49, 9, when his father was at the end of his life, he predicted, Judah, your brothers will praise you. So the name Jew, okay, Judah means praise, and a Jew is quite simply a God praiser. A God praiser. And not only does a real Jew praise God, but he seeks the praise that comes from who? God. 
It's a God-praiser in every sense. So I want you to see the play on words that Paul's doing. The Jewish audience would have knew exactly what he said here at the end of verse 29. He says, that person's Jewishness is not from people, but from God. What? (laughs) You're talking about being a true praiser of God? You understand, it's something that happens on the inside. Don't you be counting on some other ritual or symbolic procedure. That's not what Judaism's about. It's about something God does in the heart. He inclines you to praise Him and then He praises you. That's what true Jewishness is. Listen to these Old Testament longings for this type of heart procedure, this surgery, this miracle that happens in the heart. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 says this, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants. And notice what happens when he does this. You will love him with all your heart and with all your soul so that you will live. So they long for the day God's going to do this on our hearts. He's going to make us members of His people in our hearts. Jeremiah 31-33, the prophets who talked about the new covenant, he says, instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. We will affirm the law of God. We will want to accomplish the word of God. Ezekiel 36, 29 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Notice what he said. I'm going to take that obstinacy, that stubborn, sinful nature. I'm going to take it. I'm going to replace it with a heart that's malleable, that loves me, that will be conformed to my image. But I need you to see this. Ladies and gentlemen, get this. This is a gift from God. This is not something you can earn or deserve or do to yourself. You can't do this. The new covenant which Jesus, His blood has provided, offers us the forgiveness of all of our sins and trespasses, all of our law breaking, through the death and resurrection of Christ. And then Jesus pours out the Spirit in our lives and the Holy Spirit changes our hearts the real self, and begins to incline us to keep God's law voluntarily and spontaneously. What an amazing thing! So how can we receive, if it's a gift, how do we receive this real Holy Spirit heart surgery? How do we receive this gift where God comes in and actually changes us on the inside who we really are? And you may want to write it down, but it's, it's real simple because it's almost shockingly simple. This is the grace of God. We have to realize that we're helpless. We're helpless. And we trust that what Jesus has done is all we need. And that's hard. Believe it or not, that's hard. For people to let go of their pride and come to God empty-handed, no matter what you've done, good or bad, God goes, none of that matters None of it matters. Confess you're a sinner. Confess you fall short. Confess that you're a breaker of God's law. And then we do one thing and one thing only, y'all. We cling tight to Jesus like there's no tomorrow. We consider all things lost and we go, we want Jesus. We gain Jesus. 
this covenant, this new circumcision, it applies only to those who acknowledge their sin and Jesus as their Savior and God. And here's Paul's point, whether that's a Jew or a Gentile, whether that's religious or non it includes everybody. This is the way to heaven. The Bible teaches that Jesus is our circumcision. Jesus is my circumcision and he's your circumcision. Listen to what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53, 8. He has taken, he, and it's a messianic prophecy about Christ. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment and who considered and considered his fate. For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. Jesus was cut off. He was literally circumcised from life because of our rebellion. That's what happened on the cross. Jesus was cut off from the land of the living because he took the curse of our law breaking that we rightfully deserve. And the good news is the story doesn't end there. Isaiah prophesied just two verses later in verse 10. Yet the Lord Yahweh was pleased to crush him. I need you to catch this. When Jesus hung on the cross and all of your sin, he took it on him. It says it pleased God to crush him, to grind him, to pulverize him. Because there he's dealing with our sin. But notice what happens. He says this. When you make him a guilt offering. Jesus became our guilt offering. He will see his seed. Okay. The fruit of his labor. He will prolong his days. And by his hands. The Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. This is is a, a prophecy about the resurrection. How would this guilt offering. If he's the da for people's rebellion. How does he see the fruit of his labor. And prolong his day. God raises them from the dead and goes, you did my good pleasure. You took their sin away. It pleased God to circumcise us in Jesus. And he raised Jesus from the dead to prove it. And in Jesus, we're circumcised. Philippians 3.3, look how Paul, how he talks about this. He goes, for we, and he's talking about all Jews and Gentiles. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Yo, that's a wonderful place to be. On Judgment Day, what's our reply? I put no confidence in my flesh. I'm here just to boast in Jesus. I'm here to make much of Jesus. That's all I got. And that's all you need. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? Bruce Barton said this, one of the best reminders of our undeniable need for God's grace is to read the Ten Commandments just out loud to ourselves. You won't make it long, (laughs) especially if you understand them the way Jesus understood them. I was reading this psalm this week, and I think we miss sometimes what the Psalms are supposed to do. In this particular Psalm, Psalm 15, the psalmist is trying to get people to understand we're not as holy as we think we are. Listen to what Psalm 15 says. This is a short psalm. I'd encourage you to read it every day. It'll, it'll keep you uh, humble before God. It says this, he says, Lord, who can dwell in your tent? This is, who can live in God's house? Who can live on your holy mountain? Who can go to heaven? That's what he's asking. You ready? He's going to tell you who can go to heaven. He goes, the one who lives blamelessly, 
practices righteousness and acknowledges the truth in his heart. One who does not slander with his tongue, who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor, who despises the one rejected by the Lord but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his word whatever the cost, who does not lend his silver at interest or take a bribe against the innocent. The one who does these things will never be shaken. The point is when you read that psalm isn't to go, it should make you shake. We go, "Well, well, well, I haven't done any of those things. Then we have a problem. But we have a Savior. God's word is surgical. It goes to our hearts. And if God has spoken to you today and revealed your need, absolute need, and your heart should be troubled, then there's hope for you. If you hear this message, you go, I'm in need and I'm in trouble. And you've, you've heard it right. You've had ears to hear today. But it doesn't end there. If you want to be saved, if you want to be forgiven, if you want God literally to come into your life and to perform this miracle in your heart to change your nature, then it must be done by the labor of Jesus, only Jesus, who applies this ministry of the Holy Spirit to our hearts. This is something only God does, and He does it as a gift for you and me. So the only question that's left is this, how is the Holy Spirit evident in your life. I want you to think about this. This really is is a telltale sign. If we're saying the only thing that's acceptable to God is Jesus, and Jesus ministers to us through the Holy Spirit, then there are evidence of the Spirit working our life. That the believer is growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. He's doing all those things. And I'm not saying we're perfect, but we're saying we're seeing progress because he's promised to change our nature. Is he an evident part of your life? Have you received this heart surgery through Jesus Christ? I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. I got to encourage you to do two things today. Number one... There's no way I can leave a message like this one and not beg you to count everything that you think you have going for you between you and God as loss. Dung. It means nothing. Nothing. What I'm saying that we're guilty of is we're saying we have wedding rings, but we are completely unfaithful to God. The rings mean nothing then. And I don't know what yours is in particular that you're putting your confidence or trust in. While I'm here to let you know as a preacher of the gospel, there's only one person, one work that we can put our trust in, and that's the one of another. That's Jesus. Only he lived a sinless, perfect, obedient life. Only he shed his blood and died on the cross for all of our sins. And only God raised him from the dead and gave the power of forgiveness and eternal life and a changed life is all in his name. We're here to get you to him. Jesus is God. He's not dead. He's alive. He hears our thoughts and whispers. And if you're ready to confess to Jesus, you are a sinner and give your heart. Say, God, take this heart of mine. It is terrible. (laughs) 
Do something with it. Do your, your miracle. He can do that now if you'll call out to him for salvation. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want to model a prayer for you that you can repeat after me. Again, this prayer means nothing. It's, it's no more than a wedding ring if there's actually not genuine desire and faith on our part to repent of sins and give our life to Christ. But if you say, I'm ready to do that, would you just pray this? Say, dear Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner and I deserve hell. And I no longer want to put my trust in anything else but Jesus. I believe you love me. You came down for me. You lived a perfect life. And you died on the cross for all my sins. I believe you were raised from the dead to forgive me, change my heart, and grant me eternal life. Please do that now. I give my heart to you. I want to encourage you, if you prayed that prayer, the next step, this is where these Christian rituals come finally come into play because they would have meaning now. <laughs> they can't affect what Jesus can do. But once Jesus has done his work, they do have meaning. And that very first symbol that Jesus wants us to participate in is baptism. Baptism is where we show the church and the world that we identify and believe in the saving work of Jesus. That when we go under the water, we have been buried with him in death to our sins. And when we come up out of the water, we're saying we believe in his resurrection and trust him for a new heart and new life. And I want to encourage you that if you've never been baptized, that's your next step. You are already a part of God's family. Baptism is just the way you show it to the world. So if you've never been baptized, fill out that tear-off panel, check baptism, drop it in the box, text believe to our text and church number. Go visit our website, click on the baptism uh, form and fill it out. Give us an opportunity just to talk to you about that next step. The last thing that we're going to do, and you can begin to play, we're just going to have a time of meditation, a time to reflect on today's message. I don't have a specific prayer for you this week, because I think this is where I'm at. I walked away from this message, honestly, as I approached it on Monday. I'm like, man, who wants to talk about this subject? <laughs> but I left it in absolute joy because it, it, this passage is simply saying nothing more. There's nothing we can do. Nothing. It's all a loss. And Jesus has done everything. And that should relieve us of pride. We have nothing to boast in ourselves. And despair. What are we going to do? God has intervened. And so I hope you can just take a moment to worship and enjoy Him for the wonderful gift that He has provided in Christ. We take a couple of moments just to thank Him.
Heavenly Father, we do repeat the line of this song. We do ask that you would change our hearts. God, we know that we are incapable of doing this. We confess to you all our sin. We recognize that we are prone to wonder, prone to not love you or others, Father. We're prone to break your law. And we need that heart surgery, all of us do, for you to work on us, to change us and conform us more and more each day to your beloved son's image. And Lord, we thank you for this wonderful gift of grace that you've not asked us for some religious resume in order to to get in, but you've, you've required that we repent, we acknowledge our sinfulness, and then just cling and embrace Jesus. And Lord, I pray that every person here today that they could stand before your throne and say, I put no confidence in the flesh. I put no confidence in anything I've done. I'm just here to boast in Christ and him alone. May he be our glory. May he be our satisfaction. May he be our savior and our God. Seal us in him. Lord, we thank you for his wonderful work. We can never get over it. Help us to cherish him more and more each day. And may he always be on our lips and praise. We thank you, Jesus. You are King. Holy Spirit, we thank you for coming into our wicked, sinful hearts and just daring to touch them. We're unholy, and you are. You are holy. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people say. Amen. Amen. I just want to remind you of a couple of things. Please, RSVP. Uh, By Thursday of each week, um, I try to kind of around 10 o'clock on uh, Thursday nights, I see where we're at on, as a total uh, before we separate uh, the services. Okay, do a nine or a, eleven o'clock. So please RSVP. You can if you'll if you'll do it now. You can tear off that panel, check the appropriate box of when you'd like to come, uh, drop it in the offering boxes. Cindy collects them and, and then she enters them in. Uh, so um, they actually make up the tally. So you, you will be included. So I encourage you to do that. Uh, but you can also text RSVP to our text and church number or visit our website and click on where you'll, you'll see at the top where it says reserve. You can fill out the form. It's just your name, uh, the, how many people are coming with you, and if you have an email address, it just sends you a confirmation link. Okay. Um, and then uh, please just remember as soon as we finish up here, uh, if you can exit as quickly as possible for two reasons. One, we have to wipe down uh, everything uh, behind you. And then two, we encourage you to do any and all fellowshipping outside. All right. Thank you so much for coming and, and worshiping with us today and continue to make much of Jesus. Brother Rick, will you come and lead us in one last song? Amen. All right. Take your bulletins one more time. What a day that will be. Oh, when this Jesus has done this heart surgery on us. We shall see what the oh the king is coming. Stand together, singing one verses, and then the king is coming. There is coming a day when no heartache shall come, no more clouds in the sky.
Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.